So it, James asked the question, do we run from the bear because we're afraid or are we afraid because we run? Mm-hmm. And uh, Darwin had said that fear is this innate thing that we've inherited from animals, this innate mental state, and that that is the cause of why we would run from a bear. And in general, everybody in this room probably believes that we run from danger because we're afraid. Yeah. But the research that I've done and the, the theories that I've developed suggest that this correlation that we think we have between we're afraid and we're running from the bear is simply that a correlation. It's not fear that causes us to run away. Welcome to Sing for Science. I'm your host, Matt White. Today, I'm joined by musicians Ali and AJ and neuroscientist Dr. Joseph Ledoux. Ali and AJ have a song about anxiety disorders called Attack of Panic, and Joseph is the author of the 2015 book, Anxious, Using the Brain to Understand and Treat Fear and Anxiety. Needless to say, I don't think we could have made a better match with you folks. I don't think so. (laughs) Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for for having us. us. Thank you for joining us. Perhaps the best way to start, because your song ties into this show concept so perfectly, is just to talk for a bit about why you wrote the song and why you're interested in being here and talking to Joseph and mental health awareness and all Mm -hmm. the things that come with it. Well, AJ and I always kind of keep a list of either song titles or song ideas when they, you know, happen to come upon us. Um, And with this song specifically, I happened to be in Italy with a friend of ours whose father is Italian. He speaks English, but it's, you know, slightly broken English. And he was talking about how we were on the subject matter of how later in life he started having these and he was calling them attacks of panic. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting way to say that. And I was like, I think he's meaning like an anxiety attack. And I didn't really correct him. I just kind of listened to his story and it was really interesting. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just write that down, you know, attack of panic. And then I just like show it to Asia and I was like, this is a weird idea maybe, but like, I think this is kind of a cool song title. I think for Ali and I, it became really personal, not only that title, but the idea of a panic attack and how much it's affected Ali and I in the past. I mean, we've both suffered with depression and anxiety for really as long as I can remember. It's it's crazy because I have so many questions that I want to ask about, you know, is it hereditary, knowing that it stemmed from our mom and our grandparents and seeing how it's kind of made its way down the line to us. But I think being in such a high octane industry, being musicians, being actors, it has caused for a lot of added stress <laughs> that I'm not sure would exist if we weren't doing this. And it's what we love, yeah. but it also comes with this kind of price to pay a little bit, which I feel like can can cause this anxiety in me that is that is debilitating. It, it can be debilitating. And sometimes you just get up and you go and you roll with your day. But other times it can be it can be severe and it can be a panic attack. And that's why this song felt like not only an interesting connect with who Ali was with in Italy, but with ourselves. So can you talk about those lyrics in the first verse in the chorus about what it's like experiencing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that opening line is really key because it's that idea of like, I'm picturing myself in a bathroom, right? Like laying on the cold floor, like sit back, relax, everything attacks. Like, you know, it's coming. You're going to have to sit back and buckle up for the ride. Mm. And you're not saying you're going to relax into a panic attack. You're saying this is what I wish I could do, but instead Mm. it's all going to come on full force. So that first verse, I think, opens up um, 
the idea of like what I'm about to feel, I'm just going to have to embrace because I, I know I can't stop it at this point. Mm-hmm. I think I remember feeling like when having a pan- panic attack, my whole body felt like I was just like, I had to just be in bed the rest of the day. Like I was exhausted mentally. I was exhausted physically. Your legs don't work the same. You feel wobbly. You feel shaky. And the only way that it's going to leave is to keep breathing. So mm-hmm. you will get through it. It will pass. Yeah. You're not going to die. It's just a moment. Yeah. yeah. So you are you are pretty well informed about how to. I guess we are. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 Or we are more informed when we write a song about it than if I could just speak about it to someone. Right. Funny right. enough. But yeah, that's probably true. This occurred to me, Joseph. You mentioned this very almost counterintuitive sounding thing, which is that, you know, I'm experiencing fear because I'm having this physiological phenomenon happening, right? Well, that that would be one component, but it wouldn't be a defining component. So that was the William James point, if you want to go back to that. You know, when James said we aren't afraid because we, uh, that we're afraid because we run, mm-hmm. what he was saying is that body signals in the act of uh, responding to danger create signals that the brain interprets as fear because each emotion, he said, had a distinct body signature. And that has been very difficult to prove scientifically. So I don't think that's widely accepted. But he was correct that we don't run from the bear because we're afraid. Mm -hmm. That fear is the conscious assembly of that experience, that narration that is part of your life. Everything we do, we're narrating. You know, that little voice in your head is always narrating stuff. Mm -hmm. Try to go to sleep at night and you can't shut the damn thing off. (laughs) So I'm curious, as someone who's had several panic attacks, as it's laid out by someone who's studied it in depth, Mm -hmm. and there are all these different components to it, because it's such a an all-consuming experience, which Mm -hmm. is very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Is it illuminating? Does it feel like it minimizes it? I I just feel like if I had a real traumatizing psychological Mm -hmm. event and I was learning that this was the process of, you know, a very ancient system that was in Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. and not really rooted in the reality of my experience, perhaps, I don't know how I'd react. So I'm I'm curious as mm-hmm. to how you process that. I don't know if this is new information to you, what Joseph is saying. but it, it, Most no, of it, it is. totally is. Yeah. Can I clarify something? Yeah, then? please. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think the it's not necessarily all being determined by that, that ancient system. That ancient system is generating a lot of stuff, like the suffocation feeling, the, the tension in your heart, and all of the this cold and hot sweats and all of these things that, that you're experiencing. But ultimately... You know, if you didn't have your conscious mind, you wouldn't know that that's happening to you. These would just be body states that would be right. part of your life. Right. So it's the conscious awareness that this is happening to you, which is a perhaps a unique feature of the human brain. We've got, you know, we don't. We're always hearing about how similar our brains to other animals, but we have a place up here in the frontal lobe called the lateral uh, frontal pole. It's the very tip of the front frontal cortex. No other animal has that. It has unique cells and unique kinds of uh, physiological properties and chemical properties that not even chimps have. Mm. We're the only ones. We're the only ones that so far that anyone has been able to identify. It's a unique thing. What's it called? The frontal pole. Frontal pole. And you think, well, you know, people get all upset when you say, well, chimps don't have that. But 
you know, we don't look like chimps. We have a lot of things that are different. Yeah, yeah. No mm-hmm. one would re- would mistake a chimp for a human walking right. down the street. So there are just differences. It doesn't make us better. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, all this ability to conceptualize and to understand is the source of all our problems I was as just well. going to say, it mm-hmm. almost makes things worse because it complicates everything. It does. Right. Instead of just living in right. a life without... Responsible for narcissism, yes. greed, envy, all of the awful things. Also, oh. it allows mm-hmm. us to conceptualize things and... You know, decide, okay, I'm going to build an empire state I'm going to say or to I'm dream. write a song. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, you know, it's the yin and yang. It's our good and bad. I want to get back to my question to you. Absolutely. About, yeah, yeah, about, um, because I think. How this illuminates everything for me a little well, bit. Well, that, and also I think it would be in the interests of helping mental health awareness for people to have some access to the science of, mm-hmm. and by science I mean like the evidence of of what people like Joseph have studied and what we do know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's really important to help kind of bridge that gap of what's a very like isolated experience totally. of having problems with mental health and then kind you of- You feel like you're the only one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you were also like curious about how you could maybe better explain a the panic pro- attack to yeah, someone else. Yeah, the process of going right. through one, because I think some people don't really understand it at all if they've never had one. True. So in I- 1996, I wrote a book called The Emotional Brain, and I was very surprised that I kept getting, con- you know, email was due then, but we had email, and I'd get emails or letters from therapists saying that the patients were really enjoying reading about the amygdala and how it's controlling all these body responses. So that they could conceptualize that it's you know it's not them they're not a bad person they're not uh, it's not their fault that they're having like oversensitivity to things and so forth. So I think that the patients do appreciate uh, knowing a bit about the science and mm-hmm. seeing how it all works. I mean, what's your take? Very much so. I mean, I feel like for me, it takes some of the quote unquote fear out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And talking about it normalizes it for me. I mean, I've never really discussed this publicly. I, I hope that it's illuminating for other people who are listening, but I also feel like when it does happen, you do have this like out-of-body experience where you feel like you are the only one, this is never going to end, could I die? Like, I remember feeling that when I first had it for the first time. I mean, you know, anxiety is something that everybody has. It's not uh, unusual. And growing up in a high-pressure situation that you guys were under being children and you know doing all the things you were expected to do at a young age it's probably not too surprising i mean what's the incidence of uh anxiety and depression in young actors and your your actors as, as yeah, children right yeah i think for me the pressure of having to show up a certain way on set every day and stay consistent you know whether yeah, it's, it's a big job for a it's kid. a big job for a kid yeah. i mean you're on a show at 11 12 years old and you're memorizing lines you're memorizing. getting up at 6 a.m i mean mm-hmm. yeah there's a schedule to it there's a professionalism that has to be brought to set every day you don't really want to fail anyone you don't want to really show that you're anxious because it shows that there's a personality shift when you show mm-hmm. up on set and then people mm-hmm. are like why is she acting different she's usually very cheery yeah. and bubbly yeah that's my thing is that i have a big personality and a lot of joy. And so when I am off, people really tend to notice it. And so there's this idea that I have to be very consistent all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if AJ's acting a little bit down or a little bit off, it's like, what happened to AJ's big bubbly personality? Oh, yeah. So that's why I don't even, I, I just, I'm Allie's just, like, no. I'm just like a monotone level at all times. So then nobody, <laughs> you're not. No, I'm not. But, but I think but, yeah. on set, it was this idea of like, I would feel the pressure of like having to know my lines, wanting to do a great job as an actor 
wanting to be a people pleaser. And that ended up turning into this anxiety that felt a little bit hard to manage. Mm -hmm. And then later in life, I did experience panic attacks for like a year. I probably had three or four. Mm -hmm. I haven't had one in a long time, Mm -hmm. but I remember that feeling. The weird thing is a lot of what I kind of recall seems fuzzy. And I wonder if that's because your brain kind of shuts it out. I don't know if there's a... Mm. I don't know if, 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 as people, I think we have the ability to shut out trauma, right? So if that was a traumatic moment in my life, I'm sure my brain has kind of wanted to, like, recalibrate. Well, there's actually, you know, a good scientific explanation for why you might not remember stuff or why you might even remember it stronger, depending mm. on uh, your particular makeup. And that is that uh, in a stressful situation, things, you know, hormones like cortisol are released, and these are actually very toxic at high levels. So if you're very stressed out and cortisol is just flowing like crazy into your brain, then um, it can go to the part of the brain that's heavily involved in memory, which is called the hippocampus, and have a toxic effect there. It can shut it down so that your ability to store that information that's happening to you at the moment is impaired. Mm. Now, there's probably some adaptive value to that, you know, that you... you, uh, uh, don't have to carry it all with you the rest of your life. Right, like a survival instinct. Almost. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, it's important to benefit from the past, and so you do want to remember yeah. what mm-hmm. happened to you. Uh, and I guess the other thing to point out is that there are different kinds of memories that are formed in a situation like that. So the hippocampus is involved in forming a cognitive memory so that you can remember what you were doing, who you were with, what it was all about. But other parts of the brain are storing information implicitly or unconsciously, like the part of the brain that I work on called the amygdala is storing information about the threat and the danger and the situation you're in and um, uh, forming associations with all of the things that are happening. So when you encounter those cues later in life, they can go into your brain, remind you of what you were doing, who you were with and so forth through the hippocampus, mm-hmm. but through your amygdala cause you to begin to, your heart to race, your palms to sweat, you f- feel out of breath and mm-hmm. so forth. And those are cues that you associate with a panic attack from having had one. And because, you know, even if it's not that big a, uh, a threatening situation, if you're not that bad, those cues can remind your, your amygdala that that was associated with it. And so you start mm-hmm. to have the symptoms and they just sort of rev up and can oh, that's rev up into a panic attack. That's interesting. So, but during the during the formation of that memory, if the cortisol is very high, then you not you won't necessarily remember all of the details. Mm-hmm. But it's a kind of double-edged sword because the, before you lose that capacity, your hippocampus is forming memories even stronger because of the cortisol. Mm-hmm. So, but then at some point you may lose it. Then later, because you've formed an incomplete memory. You might go to therapy and try to, you know, Explain. retrieve all this stuff, right. and you don't have the information. You have bits and pieces, and you try to put it together, and that's where the possibility of false memory comes from, which is that you have bits and pieces, and you put it together into a narrative that makes sense, but may not be accurate in terms of what happened. All memory is, wow. you know, all that's memory how it feels for is me. by nature uh, a reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's not false a carbon memory. copy. Um, every memory is a false memory in that mm. sense. Usually it's not so false, right, so right. it's okay. But it's always a kind of, you know, putting back together on the basis of incomplete information. It's so fascinating. Is it that it's it's just, it's partially recording it or you only have partial access to it? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. And uh, scientifically, that's a really hard question to parse 
um, because all you know is that the memory is not as good as it was. And to say it's because it wasn't stored properly or that you can't, it was stored properly, properly, but you can't pull it out, you can't retrieve it, is just very difficult to know. Yeah. I think for me, it's, it's enlightening because I've never really spoken to someone like you about this. I mean, yes, you can continue to take medication, right? Anti-anxiety medication and see a psychologist and, and continue to kind of review the typical monthly uh, updates so that you continue to get medication, right? Mm -hmm. But I also feel like there's, I'm a little scared that being on something long-term is is not healthy. Unfortunately, we don't know. We don't don't know, and that's kind of what's scary. And it's interesting, I've had this conversation with friends where they're like, how do you feel continuing to stay on this? And I'm like, well, I don't know. It hasn't done me any harm yet. But is mm-hmm. are there other ways to treat anxiety right. outside of antidepressants that might be a lot healthier long term? Right. So, I mean, my perspective is that, you know, part of the problem is that all of the major treatment approaches today or the most popular ones, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. and drug therapy are both outcomes of behaviorism in psychology. In other words, behaviorism got rid of the mind. It said, all we need to understand is stimuli and responses. And for decades... Can we like, talk about what stim- stimuli and responses are? Sure. So if you want to understand, for example, why a person does X, uh, according to this logic, you would need to know what the stimuli are, what are the environmental components that are making you do that, and what is it that you're doing. And so if you're responding, over-responding to threats then according to behaviorism, you can explain that as a history of relationship between threats and Mm -hmm. your behavior. Mm -hmm. You don't need anything inside the head. You don't need any conscious experience. You don't need any brain or anything to account for that. So that led to, for example, behavior therapy, which is the first kind of uh, non-Freudian therapy that would use things like uh, the procedure called extinction, so you are exposure. You repeat the stimulus over and over again to weaken the threat potential of it. So if you're afraid of spiders, you make mm-hmm. the person sit there with the spider over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right. So that mm-hmm. that's the origin of exposure therapy, but then cognitive behavior therapy added more cognition to it. But the cognition was all in the service of behavior, and drugs, of course, are all about behavior. You take rats or mice, put them in challenging situations, give them a medication, And if they act less timid, you assume that they're less fearful or anxious. And therefore, when you give it to a person, that person will be less fearful or anxious. Mm -hmm. Now, the things you're describing in terms of medications, I think, are not... Let's just ask the question, how could you possibly change the content of someone's experience with a a chemical? I don't think you can do that. What you can do is turn down the volume. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So That's a very good way to word it. You go into a restaurant in New York, it's too loud. Yep, Somebody you're says, overwhelmed. Turn it down. They turn it down. The song is the same. It's just not as irritating. It's background mm-hmm. noise instead of like right. front and center. Right. And that's what the medications are doing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. So they're not, address, they're not going into a fear or anxiety center. They're just adjusting things so that consciously you can tolerate it. It's not it eliminating it from your life. Which, right. I mean, if you're an yeah. anxious person, you're going to be anxious the rest of your life. Totally. But you can learn how to cope with it. Yes. Totally. But the, you, if a drug is sold as an anti-anxiety drug, and it's not changing anxiety itself per se, but turning down the volume, then it's, it's being missold. 
Mm. And the companies have stopped funding med, uh, efforts to develop new medications because they can't find anything that works. That Since the 60s, you've got yeah. reuptake inhibitors and benzodiazepines. Mm. So what do you find? You find new reuptake inhibitors and new benzodiazepines because all of the tests are developed because they are effective with those drugs. Mm -hmm. So all you do is you find more of those. So they say, well, we're not finding anything, so we're getting out of the business. But really, they shouldn't be getting out of the business because the drugs help. They're just not anti-anti-anxiety. They're, They're anti-symptom, yeah. behavioral right. and physiological symptom right. medications. That sounds le less sexy, but it's more accurate. Mm. And I think patients would be more appreciative if they got accurate information. Yes, I'll tell you what is sexy, though, is ketamine and psilocybin. Isn't that where <laughs> things are headed? Well, yeah, I mean, there, are, there is a movement in that direction. <laughs> I've read that, too. For panic? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the other, the other direction that, and I'll get back to that, but the other direction, of course, is mindfulness. And your ability, that is directly addressing your conscious states, right? Your experience. And I think we do have to address experience, but perhaps one thing that we need to understand is that we need to first tone down the amygdala with, for example, medication or our exposure. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we then need to begin to change the hippocampus where we have these conscious memories. And at that point, if you do those things in that sequence, the brain is now prepared to do talk therapy, to do med uh, meditation, and to use the mind to help itself. Mm -hmm. But if if you're while you're trying to meditate, you're being aroused and you're hyper, you know, just like you can't slow down, you can't get your breathing slow enough because you're always thinking about, you know, as soon as you go into a meditative moment, you all all of a sudden start to have these anxious thoughts. Mm -hmm. So you need to calm down the machine yeah. a bit. It's like you need to set up prior to right. it's accessing be set that, up that part of your mind. Right. That's why when you I've studied TM briefly mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting because there's a way that you have to enter TM, yep. right? For TM two, is transcendental meditation. That's yes. right. Thank you. There's that kind of two minutes, three minutes of getting into it, yeah. so that you're not racing as right. your right. Your brain is not racing as you're trying to get into the transcendental state. But then exiting it too is really important. Mm -hmm. I have a question about fear and anxiety. Why okay. do some people seem to be activated by it, like an athlete per se, but then mm -hmm. other people are debilitated by it? Because well, I feel like some people thrive off yeah. of anxiety, yeah. right? Yeah. It can help them. It can benefit them. They can probably become a better athlete for it. So there's a, you know, there's a famous description of, of how all this works, um, and it's relevant to other things we talked about. Mm -hmm. It's called the inverted U-curve. So, you, you know, a little bit of anxiety or arousal or stress is moving you. Um, uh, let's say this is the, on this curve, on the bottom is how much stress there is. And up here, on this side, is the performance. So as you increase stress, you perform well. Mm. But if you go too far with stress, mm -hmm. you, you cross over. And down. everyone has a different tipping point on that. Interesting. So some people will tip very early as the stress builds up. Others huh. can take it for a long time. And if you can take it and use it, then you know, you, you'd have to have some kind of interest, arousal, anxiety, mm -hmm. worry, to, to succeed in That's life. That's just probably person to person then in, in that instance. And how much they can handle, right? right. But we all need some motivation to yeah, do correct. something, you know, mm -hmm. so if you like gotta, you gotta focus on it. And if, you know, people who are focused, you might say, well, they're anxious about it, but they're just kind of getting into it and you need a little bit of arousal. Yeah, mm -hmm. or somebody's uh, challenging you to rise to the occasion. And it's like for me, for instance, 
I want to prove that person wrong. So mm -hmm. then I'm like on like a manhunt to like <laughs> be like, I'm okay. And like now it's really happening, right. you know, because you're doubting me. And um, then you reach your tipping point and it becomes. Right. And and then there's probably some people that if they got that type of feedback, they would just give up, mm -hmm. you know. So I guess it's, yeah, mm -hmm. it's very personal then. So, you know, I think you do need to be aroused to some extent. You know, if you're just totally lethargic, yeah. you're not gonna be creative and, and useful to the projects you're working on. Yeah. So you need to be a little revved up, but if you go too far, then you get maybe you know, grouchy and you know, not, not a good team player. What do you think, this is slightly off subject, but it's still in our world of mind. Are there like things you can actually do to prepare yourself to like keep your mind open to creativity? Well, I, you know, I think you know, just starting with a little bit of standard breathing and yeah. relaxation approaches maybe five minutes of meditation yeah you know just to get everybody calmed down on the same level i mean i'm not a meditation expert i, I do work with someone to try and uh, build it more into my life and i find it very useful so i think you know if, if if you if you just walk in off the street and say okay let's create you know, maybe that can work sometimes, but maybe sometimes it uh, you need to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. And mm. also, I mean, when I write songs, it's I can't walk into a room and say, "Okay, today mm -hmm. is the day I'm going to write a song." Yes, I'm, I'm impressed you guys can do that. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to mention Joseph is also a songwriter musician, and I was going to piggyback on Ali's question: how yeah. <clears throat> the intersection of of your work and your research, how is that applied to your creative pursuits? Yeah, so I mean, I write songs about mind and brain and mental disorders. So it kind of the the, the science gives uh, material to um, uh, the creative process. But I'm kind of running out of song titles that I can put <laughs> the word mind into. So I, <laughs> I probably have thirty or so. <laughs> but in terms of strategy, we can send you some after this. <laughs> okay. We've got you. Okay. <clears throat> in terms of strategy, though, like what Ali was asking, does have you used that to inform your process? It, you know, so it, people ask me all the time, do you, do you use your uh, research to uh, guide your life? And it's hard to do. It's like I'm too close to the research. And, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, I guess to the extent that I, I try to use meditation, I'm, I'm not using my research, but I'm benefiting from the field in, mm -hmm. in that sense. And I guess I know a lot about, for example, what breathing does is it grabs your parasympathetic nervous system which is the opposite of the sympathetic. And the sympathetic nervous system is the classic fight-flight system. So that's what's you know causing your heart to race and your palms to sweat and everything mm -hmm. to be kind of revved up mm -hmm. and charged. The parasympathetic is the opposite, so it's gonna slow that system down. When you do the meditative kind of breathing, that entrains the parasympathetic nervous system. In other words, it grabs it and forces the sympathetic to slow down. Mm. So that's why breathing is really useful. But yeah. Scientifically, it just puts the uh, the body's nervous system into a state which is more compatible with the meditative moment. Mm. Which is true because I've sometimes even going into an audition, I mean, I, I don't really get that nervous anymore, but every once in a while I'll find myself where I'm like, my, my heart's beating a little fast. Like, I know I'm going to mm. go in in the next five minutes. And, and it like, can really take away from mm. your performance. Right. Oh, totally. So you have to ground yourself before you go Yeah, in. so there's many times that I've tried to remind myself I need to just like close my eyes right now I need to take deep breaths for the next couple minutes mm -hmm. before I go in the room and it really does calm you down it's why are you a fan of guided meditation what kind of meditation are you 
most inclined to, to do before uh, a, a well guided or, guide is good and there's so many on the internet you I know. find and there's this thing called insight timer um that has all these guided meditations for sleep for anxiety mm. for depression whatever mm. you want a guided meditation for they're there that's cool, cool. insight insight timer it's got custom bell sounds and everything oh yeah yeah oh cool music bells and whistles. i need that you should dive into meditation more I, I don't do it nearly enough i mean i i go to yoga and it'll be like we're meditating the yeah, last yeah. five and i'm just like closing my eyes like just shavasana deep breathing going like <laughs> yeah. shit that was hard <laughs> i mean i'm like barely like i don't know if i'm really meditating right now but I, i'm vibing but i know that like it it works and so many of my friends do it and aj i mean you i know you believe in it i just i don't i don't practice it nearly enough i don't either i mean i you know i've been told that five minutes a day is enough to kind of really start you and get you going mm, yeah and you know to have a thought that you repeat with each with the breath going out and the breath coming in mm -hmm. it's kind of like you follow your breath and just lock into it for five minutes and then you feel much better mm. do you feel like it's the pattern of breathing in and out or the actual oxygen i think it, kind of you know it's like i think a six second uh, cycle of the breath yeah. is best for locking in the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. So three seconds in, three seconds, three seconds out. out. Yeah, a little pause between. Cool. So it is the oxygen? Is it the actual, the intake, the chemical? Well, that is kind so, of lining you up. You know, r related to panic, um, one of the problems in, in panic is you have excess carbon dioxide. So you have mm. this kind of suffocation. So I think when you're Part of the whole point of respiration is to move the carbon dioxide yeah. out. And if it's building up, then you're not doing it. So this is like doing it on a regular basis, which not only gets the carbon dioxide out, but it entrains your heart hmm. to be working in conjunction with the respiratory system. Mm -hmm. So this kind of taps into the bear and running thought insofar as the... The physiology. Yeah, exactly. All right, so yeah, so William James said this, each emotion has its own physiology mm -hmm. but the more commonly accepted idea is that the body physiology can be a signal but it's pretty blunt it's not very precise mm -hmm. so there's not a, a unique signature for fear and anger and love and whatever but uh, if you're in a state that where your heart is beating fast that informs your cognitive system that you need to generate a narrative and interpretation of why that's happening if it's because you just you know, ran a hundred yard dash, you got an explanation. Right. If it's because you're in a, you know, about to go on stage, you probably have an explanation. Yeah. But it may be mm -hmm. disappointing. You don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way, like, again, AJ and I don't really get nervous for going on stage for shows. No. But there's definitely not a sense of dullness right before we go on. There's like an energy that's kind of like reacting in our system and our stomach, you know, yeah. that's like yeah. getting you kind of ready to go up on stage. Yeah, so you, you're on that good point of the inverted yeah. U at that point. Right. That's it. Right. Exactly. exactly. You don't hit your tipping point. You're actually feeling like it can right. inform your performance. Yeah. Otherwise, if you were just going out you on stage bored, it'd right. be a horrible show. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what are three books in regards to mental health that would be smart besides your add. own yeah, besides, yeah besides yours to add to a <laughs> uh that's a tough question um dan levitin who's a musician lives in la actually mm -hmm. he wrote a book called uh, this is your brain on music um that's and cool. that was that's a very really popular cool. uh, book a lot of musicians love it but he also wrote a book called the organized mind and it's not about mental health so much, but just about you know how to organize your daily routines and how to use your mind in, in productive ways. So I mm -hmm. think that would I be could a, use that. I could really use that. Sometimes you know it wow. is weird. Like your day just gets lost, and you're like, how the 
f did this happen? Like, and, and it's really I've, strange. I've and I'm actually I'm a that. quite like productive person. Like I I have my lists. I have my to do. It's like, I mean, I love sleep, so maybe I sleep a little too long. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but time management is time really management can be you get over that as you get older. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like that will stop when children also get involved. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I get like nine hours of sleep every day, other than maybe when I'm on set. And I, but I try to get nine because if I get like six or seven, I, I feel like I need to take a nap on set. Well, but that's but also you run off of like way less sleep. I don't know how you do I it. I can, but I, I, I like, like force myself to go to bed at nine o'clock if I have a crazy early call time. I yeah. like getting more hours, but when I'm working on set, it's really hard to wind down because you're ramped up from being on set for 12 hours. Oh. So usually you're not getting to bed till. Yeah. 10 or 11 and then you're up at 4 a.m. So yeah, you don't I don't get a, a lot of sleep But it might be the reason why you don't feel like you're getting a ton of sleep even though you are right is because you're not entering proper REM which yeah. is interesting because I'm actually gonna take a sleep test and see How much of my sleep is actually productive it's actually because I probably shouldn't need you. as much as I feel like I need if that makes sense so that's, another, that's another discussion, but I, that's for that's with a sleep doctor. I just wanted, <laughs> that's with a sleep doctor. I wanted to take a moment and encourage you, Allie, to enter into a world and field of sleep advocacy. I don't know. Maybe we're past this era where everyone was pushing the work hard, play hard ethos, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like, oh, I only need four or five hours. Yeah, people say that. And I'm like, what? No. <laughs> and um, it's really important that people realize that a life well lived is filled with relaxation mm. and reflection. Yeah. So get out there and stump yeah. for sleep. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, beautiful. Of course, everybody needs That's a different amount. That's what I'm going to run amount. on for this yeah. next election is right. more sleep. No. Her mission can be called nine hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really think that there there is something to be said about how much that can just not only inform your health, physical health, but your mental health when yeah. there's sleep involved. Honestly, in your life. sleep and food. I mean, there's such like. But it's true. So many Huge people don't things. feel productive if they say, I got a lot of sleep. It's like people are embarrassed like, to admit that. Okay. Yeah, yeah another, you're totally right. It's like a, it's like, it is. It's like a, yeah. like, there's like a shaming behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how, how did you, how did you get into this line of work specifically? Like what did, was it just a passion of yours at a young age? Uh, it, no, no, no. I, I have no, it's kind of crazy, but I have no training as a scientist. Zero courses. And I was, I flunked math in high school and, did the same in college and never took any science courses. You're kidding. No. Um, science I, is never a great I, <laughs> subject matter for me myself. So I, I studied business in college, business administration. And uh, just because I grew up in a small town, my parents said, go to college and learn to be a businessman and come back to town. So uh, I did that and I didn't go back to town, but I studied business and got a master's in, in marketing. And in the process started getting interested in consumer psychology. Why do people buy stuff? What and year that, was this? Uh, 19, late 60s, early 70s. So was there any coincidence with what Ralph Nader yeah, was? Yeah, yeah, like? I was a Nader's Raider kind of guy. <laughs> What's a Nader's Raider? <laughs> Nader's Raider. Uh, just, he had all these young people that were trying to argue for consumer protection to help consumers be better consumers and not mm. be swayed by advertising okay. so much. Mm, you were a champion gotcha. of him. Uh, That's cool. So I, you know, I worked on that and in the process got more and more involved in psychology and uh, took a course with the guy studying the brain. I said, well, I didn't know you could do that. And I said, I want to do that. And I applied to graduate school and happened to get in because this guy knew somebody at that place and just started to changed my career right there with no science background. You know, there, there was no neuroscience to speak of at the time. There's no field. Mm-hmm. Uh, the field began right around early 70s. 
you could, you know, I didn't need to know a lot about to study these split brain patients, left, right, front, back, put a stimulus over here, goes to the right hemisphere. Mm -hmm. one over, you know, so it was very simple, had a slow intro to it. And then after that, I spent 12 years at uh, a neurobiology lab uptown at Cornell Medical School. And that's where I got all my training. I spent, you know, learning neuroanatomy, neurophysiology. It was all mm. on-the-job training. And that's why it, you know, I think it worked well because it wasn't book learning. It was just practical mm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Cool. And I always had my guitar to calm me down. Oh, right. good. That was a good mix. <laughs> so I actually want to take a moment there to ask, what is our current, what is the current understanding of what neurotransmitter does what? And I could be wrong, but I get the feeling that it's just constantly being refreshed. Well, I think we're... we're we have to move away from the idea that chemicals are the answer. Mm. Um, I mean, they are in some sense, but the same chemical, let's take a, a chemical like uh, a benzodiazepine. Mm. How does that work? Well, it works by interacting with something called the GABA receptor. Now, GABA is the inhibitory, main inhibitory transmitter in the brain. So this is a chemical that when it's turned on, it's a neuron that's turned on, it causes inhibition. In other words, it shuts down all the excitatory activity. So instead of the brain being active, it's less active. So if you take a benzodiazepine, because GABA receptors are everywhere throughout the brain and body, when you take that drug, it's gonna slow everything down. And so it's kind of a blunting mm. of your brain, basically. Mm. And that's why it's, you know, it's, it's a little helpful yeah. to kind of blunt things because you're not as edgy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But rather than simply eliminating anxiety, it's probably kind of blunting all emotional. It's dulling everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, chemicals are important, but what's more important is the circuit. In other words, you don't want to just flood the brain with a chemical that's going to do something to the whole brain. We have to find some way to have smart chemicals that can be directed to specific circuits in the brain that do specific things. So for example, if you want to change threat processing in the brain, you need to find a, a, a pill that would, when you take it, somehow only find the amygdala. Wow. How could you do that? I mean, wow. that sounds so, okay, really hard. Here's a possibility. You know, we know a lot about the genes in all these cells now. So let's say you find a gene that is only present in some cells of the amygdala that are involved in threat processing. This is all hypothetical. Yeah. Um, but then you could take the pill and it would go everywhere, but it would then only affect that cell or those cells because it's key to that gene. So that gene would be the, the thing that it's finding and binding to. We can't do this yet, no, right? We could. right? I mean, it's uh, not, yet. It's not <laughs> out of the question. But it's not okay. out of the question in our Hypothetical future. Hypothetical for now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly, we, we can do amazing things. For example, there's a technique called optogenetics, which didn't exist 10 years ago. It's revolutionized in the field. I mean, it's not something you can do in humans at this point because it's, it's too experimental. But you can inject... Um, a virus, you know, who wants a virus, but it's a dead virus, it's not live, mm -hmm. uh, the, that goes into, you inject it, say, in the amygdala. So the cells in the amygdala will take it up because that virus will, you know, find its way into the cell. And once it's in the cell, it also has these active molecules associated with it that alter the genes processing within the cell. So you can turn genes on and off inside a cell wow. by injecting this 
drug Dead virus. straight into the brain. So let's say you've got uh, you know Parkinson's disease oh, right. and you need to change dopamine transmission in the caudate butane of the striatum. Um, one more time on that one. So the, the <laughs> Parkinson's disease involves dopamine, a chemical often known as the chemical of pleasure, which is total BS. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's just a side note. Um, but it is involved in Parkinson's disease, and it happens to be important in this part of the brain called the striatum for mm. Parkinson's. Okay. So if you need to alter dopamine processing in the striatum, theoretically, you could you know, inject this virus with the dopamine processing uh, components to it to then go in and make more dopamine there because the problem is a lack of dopamine. Right. So all Would that work almost for like someone that has diabetes and maybe lacks insulin? I mean, like... Right, yeah. yeah I you mean, could do it, this it, on the many, uses are yeah. infinite. It's just a matter of, first of all, finding safe ways to put this into the human brain right. without having to open up, open the, brain up the brain and, mm -hmm. you know, stick an electrode in or a needle mm -hmm. in and inject it because yeah. that mm -hmm. opens you up to all kinds of infections and so forth. Right, so, yeah. So, but there might be ways to find ways to, to through oral ingestion, uh -huh. to uh -huh. uh, target structures more specifically hmm. with very careful i mean it's you know it's it's still science fiction but uh yeah so could we safely say that the goal is to find something that we could ingest that only targets the amygdala that would be a cool goal but it, that would in itself would be pretty crude because the you need not the amygdala but the specific threat circuits within the amygdala right. that's why the circuit is so important yeah it's i saw that you mentioned something about survival circuit right is that that is in one of your books yeah can you explain what that is exactly sure so you know rather than calling the amygdala a fear circuit i call it a defensive survival circuit it's a circuit that we've inherited from animals that detects danger and produces protective responses, defensive responses, like freezing or fleeing, that allows us to survive an encounter. Mm. That, uh, that circuit in this book, The Deep History of Our Cells, I trace back to the beginning of life. Not because back the first bacterial cells that ever lived had cells and circuits, because it was only one cell, uh, but because it had to do five things to survive, detect danger, incorporate nutrients, balance fluids, uh, thermoregulate, and reproduce. Those are the same things we do every day to survive. So these are survival activities that have been part of cellular life, in other words, part of life, since the beginning of life. As you go from single cells to multiple cell organisms with nervous systems and so forth, things get much more complex. So we have much more complicated ways of defending uh, incorporating nutrients, balancing fluids, thermoregulating, and reproducing, but it's the same survival uh, need that's being met. Wow. And when we do these things, you know, we feel fear and sexual pleasure and hunger and thirst and all these things when these systems are active, but those are our projections onto other organisms. I'm not saying other animals don't have these experiences, but we have no bloody idea what they're experiencing because right. their brains right. are different. Because they're different, right. yeah. So we have to wind things down here. AJ, do you feel cured? Hmm. This is <laughs> <laughs> Well, the good thing is I haven't had a panic attack in a long time. So for the last bit, I have felt cured, quote unquote, cured. Okay. Um, but this actually definitely gives me confidence that it is not a abnormal to experience, but also there is no long lasting damage to this. There is the buildup of false memories, which then you can obviously go back to and kind of reignite. 
um, this feeling of a panic attack. But I do feel like the best thing I could get out of this interview is the idea of, of hopefully getting ahead of the panic attack, which I'm not sure is possible, but defeating it before it really sets in, which I think would be the start of like feeling this come on and then meditating right. ahead of it. If you could, I mean, that, that, that's, yeah. that would seem I mean, like a incredible. tough job, but yeah. I think it that, seems very that could tough. definitely be It's useful. like seeing the tsunami wave. And which I didn't know when, when it first all started. So. Right, of course. Well, how right. could you? How could you? Yeah. So, well, and this is actually... And you did say we could talk about ketamine and psilocybin, oh, right, so I'm so. going to hold you to that. But <laughs> I also I want to because because of I know me, where your head is because yeah. of the, and microdosing yes about microdosing. the date because of the and you know you would all the three of you had mentioned that the data is not there for what SSRIs and um, other mental health drugs we we don't know what the long term effects are. But one thing that because I mean I've gone on and off them for years right. and. One thing that I read that really resonated with me is that neural pathways in some ways could experience atrophy. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that if, if you're someone that suffers from depression or crippling anxiety, that if you don't treat it, that those neural pathways, it, that you could experience something like atrophy and you'd actually be doing damage by not taking this so, medication? I mean, let's think of it this way. Everything that happens to your brain is registered by your brain in some way. Some kind of neural activity is happening. So life is a series of changes of your brain nonstop. It's just a continuous series of changes. It's, circuits will change, mm. you know, but, but as a result of having any kind of condition, mm -hmm. whether you're happy all the time, you're building more kind of happiness circuits in a sense, right? Because that's what your brain is, is kind of going on. Uh, or if you're depressed all the time or in pain all the time, then your circuits are doing more of that. So every experience you have is changing your brain in some way. And whether it's a, through a medication mm. or just the way you're living your life, right. mm. it's you are changing your brain. And the more positive ways you change it, the, the better. You know, better off you'd be. But mm -hmm. the, you know, I'm, I'm not sure atrophy is the right word just right. to put in there. It's just depression is part of one's life. And everything that's part of one's life changes the brain is the way to put it. Okay. Mm. I hope that people feel comforted by a discussion like this and, and feel that the idea of mental health and the debilitating factors are human and that they don't need to be debilitating for, for your entire life, that there is a way out of it. Yeah. And sometimes you have to write music to kind of ground yourself. But. I mean, even you mentioning that like you've gone in and out of dealing with depression you know i mean i think if you talk to, to most artists most mm -hmm. musicians they would say you know yes i've struggled with moments whether it's their whole life or maybe a moment in time whether it was they were getting a divorce or a band the band was breaking up or you know ticket sales were terrible or whatever it was um i mean i'm slightly envious of people who are like i don't experience depression i'm always like wow really i'm like what is that mm -hmm. but um but I guess you can use some of these moments for good mm. if you are able to like use that as maybe a superpower in a, in a weird way to be able to tap into subjects that are hard for people to talk about. And I think it's another way to identify with other people though, yeah. too. I mean, this was the cool thing about this time that we're living in is that this True. is far more socially acceptable to talk mm -hmm. about and to talk yeah, about publicly. Yeah, and it doesn't know. have to be a fad. Right. It no, it can actually be something. Intellectual discussion like yeah. we're all having. Yeah, we wouldn't have had this conversation you know, 
even if we were this age, you know, no. 15 years ago, no it way. just wouldn't be nearly as, you know, welcomed with open arms mm-hmm. as it is now, which we is never great. never talked about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, so. I can't thank you thank all you enough. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you. Thank, thank you for pleasure. having us. Yeah, thanks nice so much. Nice meeting. You too. You too. We really I can't wait to it. read your book now. Uh, cool. That was Attack of Panic with Allie and AJ and Dr. Joseph Ledoux. Check out the latest work from both our guests, including Allie and AJ's track, Attack of Panic, and Joseph's new book, The Deep History of Ourselves, the four billion year story of how we got conscious brains. Special thanks goes out to today's host, Song Loft in Brooklyn, New York, Rhett Sword, Otavio Media, TCB Public Relations, and our co-producer, The Talk House. Please be sure to subscribe to Sing for Science and check out our other episodes.